Hello, welcome back to Return on Character podcast with me, Dan Cooper, uh, the manager and portfolio manager of Rock Investments, an investment strategy that allocates capital into the public markets based on the character of its of leaders uh, leading those companies. I'm I'm pumped to to be sitting today with Scott Stiles. Um, he is in Hawaii. I am sitting here in Redding, California. She, he's got, for those who can't see, has a Hawaiian shirt on and fits, fits his environment. I unfortunately have a traditional, traditional, uh, uh, corporate like shirt. So I'm living vicariously through you. Um, welcome to the show. Thank you for taking the time to be with us. Uh, Let's start by first just telling us about what you're doing today, and then we'll drill back into how you got to what you're doing today, which, trust me, listeners, it's an interesting story. Cool. Well, yeah, thanks for having me, Dan. I'm, I'm excited to, to get to chat a little bit about um, what I do. So um, for my for my my main uh, role that I'm doing right now is I um, I head up fair hiring for a company called Seek Asia. And Seek is a big um, job boards company throughout, especially throughout Southeast Asia, Australia, and New Zealand. Um, and so I get to head up their efforts that are basically focused on preventing kind of modern day slavery and human trafficking that can happen on, on these technology platforms if they're not monitored properly. Interesting. No, I don't know anything about the problem of uh, the hiring practices and how's it, how it relates to abuse of workers, especially in the part of the world that you just mentioned. Can you tell us a little bit about the problem and how you first kind of came into it? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, before I, I got involved in it, I didn't know anything about it either. Right. Uh, I think, well, fortunately with the world cup, a lot of these problems are being brought to kind of the forefront in a way that they haven't previously. Um, some of the abuses and, and, and things that are happening or have happened in Qatar have brought a lot of it forward. But um, basically, the way I got involved with this in this space is I, I did an internship in Hong Kong before my last year at university um, here at BYU Hawaii. And I on that internship, I, I was in Hong Kong and I, I was studying finance and that was kind of the track that I was looking at doing. But I, I saw and I heard about these problems that are that migrant domestic workers face um, and specifically um, the kind of the debt bondage that they would find themselves in. And so basically, um, workers usually from the Philippines and Indonesia, uh, were leaving to be maids and nannies in the homes of, of families in Hong Kong. But in order to get a job overseas, they were typically at the time they're taking out loans between usually around 2000 us dollars for the chance to go abroad. And basically this, what would happen is they they take out a loan from a money lender at home or you know money lender in Hong Kong, and it creates a situation of of debt bondage where they're unable to leave dangerous situations. And so, I, I it bothered me. I mean, I was kind of I was made aware of this problem from from my my brother in law, who was a professor at, at Hong Kong U. And so, did the did this internship and this internship this problem really bothered me because I've I've grown up as a middle upper class kid in the U S. Right. So so these types of things are. Are, are problems I've always been told that people can get themselves up by their bootstraps, but the reality is that that wasn't possible for these folks. And they were going to Hong Kong 
and taking risk and working their tails off. And they never really had a chance to succeed because uh, they were leaving with so much debt that they could never get ahead, right? They're paying off their, 80% of their salary was going towards paying off that loan in the first six to nine months. And then they were taking out new loans in order to pay for their family to survive in the meantime. And um, basically we, I, Wrote up this business plan, sent it out. Some folks got it and said, hey, we'll fund you if you do this. And so I, um, I upon graduating, Scott, can you hear me? I moved to Hong Kong and, and we did it. Scott, tell me about what you're doing today uh, in, in, in the firm that you're working with. And then really kind of the, the impetus of you being in this industry. What inspired you to, uh, to orient yourself around uh, the current career path that you have today? Yeah. So, I mean, I, I think it's, it's probably easiest to start at the beginning. I'll, I'll tell you my role right now is I head up fair hiring for, for seek, which is a large, a large tech company that owns a lot of the employment platforms throughout, um, throughout Southeast Asia, as well as Australia and New Zealand. Um, and, and how I got into this is that I did an internship before my last year at university, um, here at BYU Hawaii. Um, I did an internship in Hong Kong and, um, I, I basically saw the problems that these migrant workers face and, and specifically they were migrant domestic workers. So they were maids and nannies that were leaving the Philippines and Indonesia for the chance to basically improve their families' lives. Um, and so they were, in order to do that, they were basically paying huge agency fees um, to the recruiters who'd find them jobs. Um, and they were, they would, in order to pay for those fees, they'd take out loans of usually around 2000 US dollars. Um, at 50, 60% interest. And so basically they're making 500 bucks a month. And so, yeah, so, so basically, you know, it would be like 80% of their salary for the first seven months of their, of their jobs was kind of a common number. Did you hear about this? Like, like in passing, was there an individual that you actually got to know? Like, how did you, how'd you hear about it? So if you go to Hong Kong, you'll see out on the streets on like a Sunday, whether it's kind of in the parks, you'll see a lot of people sitting out having picnics, right? And it's, these are typically the, the these domestic workers, right? So it's a, one of these problems that everybody in Hong Kong is kind of aware of. Now, who brought it to light was my brother-in-law, who, uh, his name's David Bishop, and he was a, he's a professor at Hong Kong U. And um He's the one that pointed out kind of what was happening in the debt and the nature and the damaging nature of the debt. And so he and I talked about it and I basically said, let's start this business. I mean, so what, what I did is I wrote up a business plan for basically this idea of disrupting the employment agency industry by going and competing kind of with this, uh, with this kind of cartel-like body of, of agencies that's run the industry. And so wrote up this business plan and I, and I sent it out and David sent it onto his network and it ended up with uh, Tammy Baltz, who ended up being one of our co-founders and, and some folks at Goldman Sachs who basically said, Hey, we'll fund you if you do this. And so that was, we got that email back within a week of me sending it. And oh I come goodness. from a pretty normal, a pretty normal kind of, I'd actually never left the U S until I went and did that internship that summer. So I, I come from a pretty normal kind of upper middle class, you know, family with parents who love each other and stable, you know, financially stable and all that. And so, but I, I didn't also didn't know a lot of people that would just say, yeah, we'll fund your business off of a, a email that was written, you know, a business plan written by a, a college student. Right. And so, so when that happened, it was like, okay, I guess this is what we're supposed to do. 
And then my, to be totally honest, I, I kept on looking at other options and it was ultimately my, my partner, Kelsey, my wife, who, who was the one that kind of said, no, 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 this is what our family can and should do. And that's how we ended up starting FAIR. So basically graduated from school, moved out to Hong Kong and started this, this agency. Um, it started to work pretty quickly and it kind of took traction and, and we got traction in the market. And what we really did is we focused on pricing. We wanted other agencies that were our competitors to charge more to employers so that they could have the margin to charge less to workers. And so um, we did that. We saw some pretty quick disruption in that and that they all kind of followed our pricing within you know, six months of us starting. Um, and so we got the business up and going. We became one of the biggest agencies in Hong Kong. And um, then we basically looked around and said, what can we do next? We then worked with a group of, uh, we kind of identified a group of Filipinos who could launch the training side of the business. Because when people are going abroad, there's a lot of training that's required and they tend to be rather bureaucratic processes, especially in some of these countries that, um, that, that are sending workers out, right? And so um, we launched a, a training center um, and then we then, uh, I moved to the Philippines to, to send, to launch a, a sending side agency. Um, and we then got pushback from some of those agents that maybe weren't so happy about how our business model worked. And, and it became clear that that probably wasn't going to work. But as that was happening, we realized that we had agencies that were approaching us and asking for us advice and wanting us to mentor and lead and guide them. Um, and, and, and how to do this ethically, right? Because the great thing about the world is it's getting better. There's tons of great people that want to do the right thing. And so um, we launched a, a, a little tiny investment kind of entity that would invest in these agencies that wanted to ethically place migrant workers. I know it's very specific and very niche, but um, this type of migrant recruitment, this is how a lot of the slavery that happens in the world, the modern day slavery issues that we're, that we're kind of facing, a lot of it is with this migratory processes. And so we launched a little investment entity, made our first investments. And then uh, last December, um, I got the, the Asia CEO of Seek reached out to me and, and I'd actually done a deep dive on this company in 2017. And I told myself if I ever le left FAIR, that's one of the companies that I would join um, because they were so well positioned at a scale that we would never be able to achieve at, you know, from my own kind of the foundation that I had founded with my co-founders and all of our, you know, the, all these amazing people. But, um, but I realized that there was an opportunity for scale that wasn't there. And so I, I talked with the CEO, he kind of explained this role and what they were trying to do. And I kind of said, oh shoot. So I, I actually called my board and had a, a mini meeting and said, hey guys, this opportunity has come up before I applied with Seek even, because I wanted to make sure that we kept those relationships intact because what we've achieved at FAIR, I'm super proud of. And I, and I believe in FAIR's mission and approach now as much as, you know, as, as much as I ever have, but there was just a different opportunity for scale and an opportunity for some of the people that we're ready to step up and lead at FAIR to do that. And so in the, the FAIR Employment Foundation, I should say, that's the group that we started. That's a really incredible, uh, that's an incredible story. But let's go back a little bit. Um, what kind of experience was it for you living in Hong Kong? I'm assuming you had just gotten married recently. Is that right? Yeah. Um, and launching a, a, a pretty disruptive uh, idea in a category where there maybe aren't too many friendly folks. Did you get any uh, pushback uh, uh, in the early days? Was it um, 
how did you get so much traction so quickly? I guess is one of the questions I had. Yeah. So, I mean, as far as pushback, yeah, we got that. And that, that's part of doing business in a lot of these places. And it's, it was, um, it's just part of life. I, I, we didn't spend a lot of time dwelling on it and, and we tried really hard to, to not, to not make enemies, to not kind of over dramatize the problem, to not call people out individually. And, and the reality is, is that I believe that most people are good, like I've said earlier. Um, but I believe that people justify things, right? And I think that the kind of justification that went into um, these small business people making, doing these kind of exploitative things is, is it's the same type of exploitation that people use in all kinds of other, <laughs> all kinds of other businesses. Um, and so we tried really hard to not have a lot of enemies while also kind of sticking by our principles, um, which means you don't have a lot of friends either, right? Um, so, so yeah, there's some of that, but we, we didn't spend a lot of time dwelling on it. Um, as far as how the change happened is we, we focused specifically on, on a market that was already broken, right? So we did the employers who are the hirers of these migrant workers, they weren't happy with the status quo either, right? Most of them were not happy with how these agencies were operating because how they were operating, they made more money when they created failure than when they created success. Because the employer would charge, sorry, the, the employment agency, this recruiter who we were, were filling the role of, they would typically charge an employer about 500 US dollars and they would charge a worker about 2000 US dollars, right? And what that does is it creates an incentive structure where they're way better off charging, um, creating churn there, I should say. So they actually don't want to do a good job. And when a worker is paying that much for a job, you're not going to get the most qualified applicants. And so we'd go to employers and say, hey, sure, this other option is quote unquote cheaper. But the reason why you're using this is because you haven't had success in your previous placement anyway. Right. And so, so we, we kind of provided a very kind of market driven and we'd kind of say of all the things that you could, you know, that you would want to pay appropriately for, it seems like you should want to pay for the service that helps match the person who's going to take care of your children or take care of your elderly parents or whoever it may be. And so it was actually a pretty easy value proposition. But, and what we were really comfortable with is knowing that a lot of people weren't going to want to use us because we were more expensive, right? I think sometimes with this type of change, people say they want to disrupt and they want to disrupt the entire market on day one. And the reality is the disruption is going to happen with your early adopters at the beginning, right? We were very comfortable saying these, you know, we want to focus on these types of groups. We want um, and then we're going to lead to a bigger change in the end. And so that's kind of what we did. Did you have any, uh, any stories stand out of, of, uh, of individuals that benefited from this change? I mean, there's a lot of, a lot of migrant workers. There's, there's a lot of migrant workers. Now, one of the things that we've worked really hard about and when, when you're dealing with a, a problem like this is that you, you don't necessarily need to go take credit for everything that happens and you don't, you don't, because so. I think a lot of the people that have been helped by the work that we've done will never know we existed. Like they'll, they'll know, they'll have heard of our agency, but they won't know, they'll never know the dynamics of the market and kind of what has happened over the last 10 years. Um, which so is kind of like the like, path they could have gone down, the path they could have gone down that, that they weren't, they're probably not aware of today, but because you exist, it was kind of like a, a deviation of self-destruction and, uh, yeah. Yeah. That, how many workers did your agency facilitate? So, uh, we're, right now we're probably at about 7,000. When I left, we're six, six plus. And so that's the, that's the, that's a great number. But 
one of the things that kind of made us different is that's not the number that I ever particularly cared about. I was always looking at the market stats of how much were workers in the entire market paying because you have nonprofits and NGOs that are always doing that research. And so when we started, um, the 90% of workers were paying an illegal fee and it averaged about $2,000. So 90% of Filipino workers, which was our focus market. On the, um, when I left that number of, that were paying an illegal fee was down to 16%. And so it, it was like a legitimate disruption that happened there. Now, there's a bunch of things that happened that made that work, right? I think that our pricing increase triggered some of the changes and, and enabled a lot of the changes to happen. Um, but also you had good, you had better, you had some better government enforcement than they had in a long time. You had um, the media starting to draw attention to these types of problems in a way, in a local way that they probably hadn't previously. Um, and so it's impossible to say like, oh, this was all us. But when I look at like what I'm proud of and what success looked like for us, it was that the workers who never used our agency had better outcomes, right? And that's kind of what we shot for. And so by doing that, because if we if we just wanted to have our numbers be high, we would have priced differently. It's an entirely different strategy, right? And so we were kind of really deliberate about that from the beginning. And I think you said it earlier, but so did other agencies start to mimic your your business model? And that's what, and, and, and that's where it's been, it's been neat. Cause you, you also, we've seen them mimic it in Hong Kong and take on some of our, you know, so like I said, they're not charging workers. Many of them are not charging workers, hardly anything anymore. Um, we then, and then we've also seen them mimic it in different countries from Singapore to uh, Malaysia to, you know, kind of all these different countries. And so as we got in contact with those that wanted to kind of follow it, we, um, we looked to invest in them, right? And so that was that was kind of the approach that we realized was best taken because at some point, having those things be locally run, locally managed with some input and some kind of uh, mentorship from outside was kind of the the path that we see being the most effective in there. One of the amazing, I think it was one of the most amazing disruptive for good ideas I've heard in a lot of time. Thank you. I mean, um, and, and also I could see how it's almost cloaked uh, it, how a lot of people wouldn't even know that there there was a change or a consequence uh, because they were being hired anyway. Tell me about what you're doing today, and what do you what do you what do you think about as far as areas uh, in this particular category in this part of the world that really needs improving, and that what what are you working on to try to do that um, in in your current yeah. role? Yeah, so. So, I mean, my, my current role, it's, it's pretty awesome. It's, it's, like I said, it was, it was kind of a, a dream job um, and I had my dream job before and now this one as well. So, um, and what we're, what we're doing is, so Seek, you know, is the job platform for, for, you know, many of these Southeast Asia markets. So they have JobsDB and JobStreet are, are two of the brands. So it's like Thailand, Malaysia, um, Singapore, Philippines, Hong Kong, and Indonesia. Um, and I think they're the, okay. the number one job board in, in all of those markets. Um, and so specifically, in for especially for some of the higher end stuff, now not all higher end, but um, basically if you look at that part of the world, especially right now, there's a lot of scams, there's a lot of fraud, and there's even these newer kind of human trafficking rings that are forming out of Cambodia and out of some of these kind of, some of the groups there. And so um, the job is to make sure that we have very safe platforms that aren't putting people in those situations, right? And so it's kind of broken into a couple of different components. And 
um, you know, the, the trust and safety one, which is what are our processes look like to make sure that people aren't getting onto our platforms and doing bad stuff. Um, and then, you know, what are, what are these other kind of, what does the future look like for, um, for safe hiring? Right. And so that's what I've been, I've been working on. It's been awesome. Um, and how do and you it's do been that? neat because it's, how do you do that? I mean, I mean, how do you verify if it, it's not some uh, cartel trying to use your platform to funnel workers for life? You know, how do you keep from doing that? How, and I would imagine, um, I mean, central to your brand would be trust, right? I mean, that that's a big deal. If people start trusting you disproportionately than all the other brands, the workers are going to want to, are going to feel more comfortable going with you. How do you do this? How do you? How do you yeah, so, regulate so there's, your, your There's a your lot platform. of stuff. I mean, the, there's technology stuff. So one of the things is that, and, and this is where, you know, the funny thing is that when you look at a lot of the big tech companies, the ones that we call platforms, um, you know, they basically, um, they hide behind the, oh, we're, we're, we have nothing to do with the content that's on our, that's on our platforms, right? And they basically say, oh, how would we ever know that people were doing bad stuff in this group that has hundreds of thousands of people in it, right? And so, so for me, the, the, the leadership of the company has been pretty adamant that, no, 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 we want to be a, a safe marketplace and the trust that people have in our marketplace is critical to what we do. And so we're not going to wave, you know, wave our hands and say, oh my gosh, there's nothing that we can ever do and we can't ever be suspicious of a client or anything like that. And so I think it starts out with, you know, there's verifications of documents that's happening. It's not a thing where you can just create a profile and then you, you have job posts that are up that day, right? Like it's, they actually create a little bit of friction there in order to kind of prevent some of these scamming. And then there's a bunch of processes. There's a little bit of AI stuff. There's a little bit of that, that they're putting into place human processes and verification. And so there's a bunch of different steps and really responsive reporting. So if anybody reports anything unusual, that thing is coming, you know, my experience is that, that it's, it's hitting the, hitting the wires pretty quickly <laughs> um, because the suspicions come up quickly, especially for applicants. And so they kind of crowdsource that in some ways, but at the same time, um, and kind of having a zero tolerance policy, um, you know, withdrawing from countries that, that have, uh, that are problems um, and that, that have markets that, that don't make sense versus the risk um, and being really comfortable and confident in doing that. And so that's what, for me, it's been cool because it's been exactly what I hoped it would be. Now, does that mean that it's going to be perfect forever and there will never be any problems? No, right? Like that's the nature of, of these types of things. But how do we make it as difficult as we can for bad people to do bad stuff? And how do we respond appropriately when when we suspect or, or get information that bad stuff is happening is kind of the way that we're, we're taking things. Maybe a little bit hyperbolic, but it just sounds like you guys are the guardian angels of... Uh of employment for very vulnerable population. So that is very, that's a little bit hyperbolic. I think that our, our, our team would probably say, but, but I think we're making a sincere effort, right? And I think that's the, the thing is that when you look across employment and, and especially in these types of markets, there's just incredible risk that it creates, right? Especially when there's any sort of migration or moving. And so if it's, and when you and I hear about migration, we think it's going from, you know, from, California to, you know, Australia. We think it's like between countries, but in some of these countries, like for Indonesia, for example, there's so much um, internal migration, but the cost of making that move is so expensive for somebody who, you know, doesn't earn a lot of money 
that that is just as scary for them as you or I going to another, probably it's more dangerous and higher risk than you or I going to another country, right? Because, um, and so that's the, the thing that we have to kind of keep our eyes on. And so is it, are these processes perfect? No. Are they, are we putting real efforts into making them better? Absolutely. And I think that from the top levels of the company, they're focused on it. Uh, it's neat to see bring up the, the, the leadership of the company, because that's my, my job is, is trying to identify the uh, CEOs and their teams that uh, behave with character habits that are consistent with our definition of character, which is integrity, responsibility, forgiveness, and compassion. Um, and that you can have well intentions as much as you can from an organization standpoint, but if it's not valued at the, at the, at the very top, uh, it's likely to crumble. Um, it's good to hear that your organization has that. It sounds like it does. Would you agree? Yeah, no, I would totally agree. And that's been, um, you know, that's been one of the things that I've been the most, um, it was a hard decision to leave where I was at. Right. And I was comfortable and I was happy. And, and, um, and that was one of the things that I just wanted to make sure that everybody was aligned and it's been, you know, the, and I don't, I don't know, you know, this, I don't know if, I don't know if this can make it in the podcast because I might have to ask permission to say this, but the first meeting that I had with our, with our global CEO, um, he said to me, he said, you know, I, what I've found in my career is I need to surround myself with people who will really, uh, do focus on doing the right thing all the time, every time and, and not be afraid to fight for it when they need to. And, uh, and he was like, I don't think you're afraid to fight. I was like, nah, I'm good. <laughs> uh, and so, and so that was kind of like, okay, yeah. Yeah. Well, I, I, well, to tell you the truth, it's unusual to have this position is a position that I've never seen in any company in the world, right? Like I, I've never seen somebody who's in charge of heading up fair hiring on, on these types of, on any sort of platform and looking at modern slavery implications for, for technology and things like that. I know that I think some of the groups have people that have focuses, but nobody is kind of reporting directly on that. As far as practices going forward, what would you like to see uh, adopted uh, by countries to improve uh, the plight of subjects that have been in slavery and the prevention of slavery uh, throughout the world? I mean, it's not just in those countries. There's, there's a lot in the Middle East and other places in the United States even, yeah. right? Uh, how... How do you feel we're doing uh, on, on that fight, and how how do you think uh, we can get incrementally better as a world to to fight those problems? Yeah, I mean, to me, the the biggest my my whole focus has always been about like helping allowing people to make their own choices, right? So, you know, some folks uh, they want to kind of write out what every single rule needs to say and what how it should be worded and stuff, and we need people to do that, but Mine is how can we, but my focus is how can we allow people to make the decisions that are best for them and their families? And so the biggest one is, is eliminating the debt and the recruitment fees that are part of this uh, right. migration, this kind of migrant worker recruitment so often. So, um, because it's easy to say, oh, well, you know, I took out student loans. No, no, no. Our student loans are nothing like this because our student loans, if we have an education that created, created value that we're going to have throughout our lives. Right. And so, mm -hmm. so, you know, I kind of cringe when I hear somebody, some banker says, Oh, it's just like me with my student loans. Ha ha ha. I'm like, no, you're wrong. 
um, uh, because because it's it's nothing like that, right? And so what it is is it's, it's attached to a specific job. And so when that worker takes on that role and they and they take out that loan, they really cannot leave until they're finished paying off the loan. And many times they really can't leave even after that because they're so terrified of having to go through the process again and take out another loan that they can't leave dangerous situations, right? And so I would say like from a big if I were king of the world policy person that could implement something I, that was simple, I would just say make recruitment fees kind of completely eliminate those, right? And um, so that workers don't have to pay to find or get jobs, right? And so yeah. that would be the, the kind of the, the, the big overarching principle. There's been huge progress in, in some of these markets and, and legislatively as well, even Indonesia. Um, and so we're starting to see this get picked up just in the last four or five years three, four years. And so um, I'm pretty confident that a lot of these issues can be resolved in pockets. But what we're going to see is they're going to find new markets that don't have the infrastructure in place to enforce them. Right. So. Right. Um, and so that's where where we're going to kind of always be battling. What are the vulnerable markets today? Like where where, where in the world are, are sub, you know, more, more vulnerable to to abuses? Basically, if you look at a lot of the really poor countries, so Bangladesh, is, yeah. is a really tough one. The workers that go work in construction in Bangladesh. So um, in like, for example, in Qatar right now, there's a lot of World Cup coverage about the modern slavery issues and all that. Right. It's exactly the same problem happening in, in the construction sector. And a lot of those were Bangladeshi, uh, Indian or, you know, Afri or African workers that, that went there. And so that type of, ex and Nepalese as well. So so that type of exploitation is is, it's actually really easy to solve. Like, that's the funny thing about this problem is it's like, wait, so what you're asking me to do is make sure that the company pays the costs of hiring their own employees that are going to work for them. Okay, cool. That kind of makes sense, right? So nothing that we're, we're proposing is like wildly complex. It's wildly complicated. It's pretty straightforward, actually. I wonder sometimes uh, what motivates a person to go and live in Hong Kong, start a nonprofit and try to make a difference in the world. What was it that motivated you to go to even start this path that you walked down? Uh, did you, did you have any role models in your life that said, geez, you know, you can go out and make a difference in the world. What, what gave you the, the courage to try? Yeah. I don't know. I think there's a couple, right? Of course. I think, uh, the starting one is, is my partner, Kelsey, who when I had other opportunities that came up that were in finance, actually, she basically, you know, I had a, I presented some research and then I got a job offer on the spot. And this person was very interested in, 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 you know, having me join their firm. And I was all excited. And I got back in the car after this presentation and everything. And I said, Hey, what do you think? You know? And she looked at me and said, but well, we're supposed to help the ladies in the Philippines. I was like, all right, that's, that's check. We're, we're good. Right. So, so I think that that's the, when you have that type of person as a, as your partner and, and for me, what kind of, you know, that was a really big deal because it's, I looked at this problem in the Hong Kong context and said, I can solve that. Like that's a world problem that like my skill sets can actually lend itself to solving, right? It's very entrepreneurial. It's kind of sales. It's human. It's, these are the things that it can, it can do. Um, and so once I had that realization and I'd shared that with, with Kelsey, it was kind of like, oh, that, this is what we're going to do. Um, and so I think for me, the idea that, you know, we all have 
different skills and different gifts and things that we can do. And, and I looked at this and said, no, I can help like, I can help so many people that it would be kind of unreasonable for me to not do this. Does that kind of make sense? Like, so, yeah. and, and I think that there's kind of definitely like a, a, a pride component of it where you're like, you're proud of, of doing something that, that made a difference that makes a difference. Right. So I think that's one of the, one of the things um, I think gratitude, right? Like I, I just, my worst case scenario when I started, we, we describe these entrepreneurial stories. I think we, oftentimes we describe them as like this, oh my gosh, this big risk taker, you know, like this is amazing. And the reality is like my worst case scenario. So I, I graduated school, didn't really have anything. So it didn't really, it wasn't like I was giving up anything. When right. started this business and my worst case scenario was that I went and tried to start it. It failed in a year. I moved back sold software somewhere and applied for MBA programs with a great story about how I was so gutsy that I tried to start this thing, right? Like, so, so like my, my worst case scenario in life is better than 99% of the world's best case scenario. And so it was just kind of like, yeah, this makes sense. So I've always kind of viewed it that way. And I've tried to keep that perspective, even in those kind of hard moments. Right. I listen, I, I want to thank you for coming on our podcast. I, I really enjoyed your story. You're a total inspiration. But I know you're also, it's so clear you're a humble guy that's got, uh, got a, a really good perspective on things and that, yeah, you've done some good things in the world, but I can tell you love it, you know, and you've received a ton for having done it, you know, and, and this did a great duality in the effort to try to make a difference. And you're an incredible example of that. Um, keep going. Uh, keep doing the way you're doing. Uh, we need more Scots in the world. And, and I'm grateful for you giving us some of your time today and sharing your story. Thank you. I really appreciate it. Yeah, it was fantastic. Thank you very much.